0: Lord, thank you so much for this time here. Uh, just to what a privilege it is to get to have Your Word, Your written Word, that leads us to the Living Word, Jesus, and tells us all about in great, great detail about Your great love for us and the uh, the only way to to have peace with You, to be saved, Lord, to to be adopted as Your sons and daughters through the work of Your Son. We uh, we bless You, we love You. I pray that You would. Be here. I know that you're with us tonight. I pray that you would send us your spirit, you'd fill us, you would fill me as I teach, that you would, um, Lord, that your words would go forth in power, and that they would create life in us, that they would make us to love Jesus more and all that he's done for us, and to see our hopelessness without him. Lord, that somehow, even in this really hard text, this last passage before Paul gets to the glorious... Uh, unmitigated unadulterated gospel, the pure water of life that um, somehow that uh, your gospel would go forth as we as I teach as we open your word together that your word would give light even as it uh, shines light on our own darkness apart from Christ, and that the gospel would be clear and that Christ would be exalted and we would be drawn to him and we would love him more and walk out of here empowered to, to follow, to follow you, Jesus. Um, We love you. We bless you. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So tonight we are in Romans 3, 1 through 20. Let me just go ahead and, oh yes, thank you. Thank you, Nisa. Uh, So as, as always, I think one time I did not print this sheet out and it, on the back, it does have the hymn. What we'll do, I, I, I do. I would like to sing the hymn um, at the end again, so we'll we'll wait to sing that. But as you're passing that around, I'm just going to go ahead and read our text for tonight. Uh, and again, I I, I I try to I read it just for the sake of the recording. So otherwise, I would have, I w- we would do a round robin. Um, let me go ahead and read. We're in Romans three, one through twenty, and. Romans three twenty. this is it. I mean, this is the last bit of the really tough part where Paul really just paints us into a corner. And he's talking about how God's wrath is being revealed against unrighteousness, all unrighteousness of men. So we're still in that section. It's, it's not a happy section. Not a ha- that's kind of the point. Um, but the black backdrop of behind a diamond makes the diamond pop. And the diamond that's going to pop is next week, and it'll be every week after this. I know this has seemed like a slog, but it'll be every week after this all the way through April, early May, as we get to just soak in the gospel as Paul takes us along. So, um, so bear with me here, and let me go ahead and read Romans 3, starting at verse 1. We'll go all the way through verse 20. Then what advantage has the Jew? Because what has Paul just been saying? What, what's he been saying for the past chapter?
1: You're physically circumcised,
0: but you're not circumcised in heart. Yeah, he's been saying, hey, Gentiles, you're not the only ones that uh, stand condemned under the just wrath of God against sin. The Jews do too. My own people, right? So So then he turns and says, okay, well, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Oh, okay. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does our faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no... Okay, he's wrapping up here. He's wrapping up this huge two-chapter section. By, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So tonight, I am with simply calling this lecture, No One is Righteous, Not One. Straight from the text. Good evening, brother. Straight from the text. Hey, guys. Okay, we got chocolate, we got notes, so y'all make sure and get some of both. Um, Calvin, John Calvin in his Institutes, book two, quoting St. Augustine in his sermons. Hey Seth, I need you to... It's okay. This is Calvin quoting St. Augustine or Augustine. He says, whatever good you have is from him, him being God. Whatever good you have is from him. Whatever evil from yourself. Nothing is ours but sin. It's a pretty good synopsis of what Paul is telling us here. It's, it's, a, dark, it's a dark word, but it's a true word, and it's a necessary word if we're going to appreciate the gospel. So let me just quickly jump through and give you a logical outline of what I feel like Paul is saying in this passage, and then we'll just jump straight in to the notes and then um, at the end, if we have time, I'll give you a more, more expansive textual outline. So this, this isn't a textual, I mean, it is a textual outline, but it's more just sort of, what's the flow of Paul's argument here? So briefly, number one, what's the first, th- very thing, first thing Paul says in this text? What
2: advantage has the Jews?
0: Okay, so number one, do the Jews then have any advantage at all over non-Jews? And what does Paul say? Nope. He doesn't say that. Yes,
1: okay.
0: he does say. He said yes. He, 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 kind of tricky, mom, because th- this passage is tricky, right? So it tricked you, and it's and it it's hard. So do the Jews then have any advantage at all over the non-Jews? Absolutely. But mom, what they're you're they're hooking everywhere. into is they
2: were entrusted with the order.
0: That's right, and that's a huge advantage. He says. Um, but what then? What you're hooking into is actually. Um, they're all condemned under sin. None of, none of us can stand. Not, no Jew, no Gentile before the living God on our own. Right. So, so the first thing he says, is do the Jews then have any advantage? And he says, over non-Jews, he says, yes, we've been given the scriptures. And he calls the scriptures the very oracles, the very words of God. Absolutely. But number two, even though they have an advantage, not when it comes to their standing before God. And mom, that's what you were really um, saying, I think. They don't have an advantage when it comes to their standing before God. Remember what what we studied last week, Paul in chapter 2, he says that just having the law is not an advantage. What's an advantage? Not just having the law, doing the law. law. And no one does the law. No one keeps the law. Um, Okay, so it would be an advantage if you kept the law, but the Jews, I mean, they have not kept it. All you have to do is look at, for a forensic report of whether or not the Jews kept the law, what do we have? We have the whole Old Testament. We have the entire Hebrew Bible. It is a di. it it is a condemning document that shows God's faithfulness in the midst of massive unfaithfulness by his people. We'll get into that much more. So, do the Jews have an advantage? Absolutely, but not when it comes to standing before God, because they've broken the law that God's given them. So, number three, so again, neither Gentile nor Jew is righteous in God's sight. That's what Paul recast by saying, no one is not a single person, in case you missed it, as he goes through this, this um, sort of concatenation of largely Psalms, some prophets, he throws some Proverbs in there, in verses, what is it, 10 through 18, he's just pulling from the Old Testament, showing that there's not a single righteous person. It's not, he's like, I'm not, I'm, this isn't new, I'm pulling from the Old Testament here, I'm showing you not a single person is righteous, no Jew, no Gentile. Um, so then fourthly, and finally, then what is the law for?
2: To show
0: our sin. The law is mainly for this, exactly. It's to show us our sin. The law does not change the heart. Like, again, it's overused, but it's overused for reason. Like a mirror cannot change my face. A mirror has no power to change my face. No power. Um, it shows us not our righteousness, but, but our unrighteousness. So the, the mirror just shows me the scar on my face. The law shows me all the ways that I break it. Um in worse, so, uh, okay. worse, it shows God. What do I mean by that? God's good. We tend to compare, what I mean by this, and we're going to return to this. We tend to compare ourselves to people that are worse than we are yeah. to make ourselves feel better. I'm not so bad as that guy. So if I compare myself to Hitler, I'm looking pretty good.
2: Or we look at the outward of our behavior instead of our
0: heart. Right. Yeah. So the law, though, compares this to whom? Yeah, the law, that's right. The law compares us to God because the law is God's word and it is, it is his character on a page. It is, it is you know, don't, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, be absolutely truthful, truthful, love the Lord your God with everything, love your neighbor as your very self. These are all things that God does. These are all, this is who God is. And so in his light, which the law is, all my imperfections are, um, uh, stand out. They're shown. If not to me, then to God, right? So, next to God, we all look terrible. Our guilt is plain. And because God is just, there's nothing for us but to be eternally condemned, unless there's an intervention. By the way, what's. Is there
2: a party out
0: there? I'll keep the door open in case somebody wants to come in. Um, okay, so let's jump into the, the text. So, that's sort of a, a logical outline of what Paul says here. And don't worry, next, next week we're coming up for air big time. He's going to give us the, the, uh, the pure gospel. Um, so number one, does the Jew, So verse 1, does the Jew have any advantage? Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is, is circumcision? Does the Jew have any advantage? And the answer is...
1: No. Much in every way.
0: Yes. Okay, again, so he does say yes. And what is the main thing that he says? What's the main advantage the Jew has? To begin with... They've been given the word of God. Yeah, they've been, give, they've been entrusted. It's a trust. They've been given the very oracle's... Of the living God, the very breath of God, His very word. No other people on the face of planet Earth has been given that. Yeah, Jordan.
1: Okay, um, I, I understand what he's saying, but I right. do kind of I do struggle to see the connection. Why does he jump from what's the value of circumcision, and then he answers it with being entrusted with the oracles of God? Is he does circumcision stand for generally like what what value are the like signs of the old covenant?
0: So I think, and it was a mark. It was a mark of. The people of God? That's a great question. And I I know that, and I'm not sure I have the answer, um, but I know that um, in, in the last text, he was very careful. Like he moved from the Jews have the law, but they don't keep the law, to, hey, does circumcision then save us? And he says no. And he connects that to the fact that they don't keep the law. And so the only way circumcision is going to be a help to you is if you keep the law. He connects circumcision and the law because circumcision is a part of the law. And so I think one of the things he's doing here is he's hooking into that. Um, He's saying, what's the value of circumcision? Well, hey, we've been entrusted with the oracles of God. There's a massive value in circumcision, but it's not just in being given the oracles. It's in keeping those oracles. Um, So I think that, but I think that he's also hooking into the fact that the Jews circumcision is, is, is a law in particular that is the mark of them being God's special covenant people. And so um, he's saying, look, there's value in circumcision, but if he hooks back into the argument he's just made, there's only value in circumcision if you keep the law that it's a larger part of. So um, I, I, think, I think circumcision had become a sort of talisman to the Jews, and it was definitely part of the law that the Jews did not keep. And so I think that that's one of the reasons he's saying, hey, um, he's saying, hey, is there value in circumcision? Absolutely. We've been given the oracles of God more broadly, um, but then he goes into again how they haven't kept them. So, I, 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 yeah, that's a great question, and I don't know that we can get into it more as we as we move through it. But that's it's yeah 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 okay. So number verse nine to jump a bit in verse nine. And I, and I pair these things because there's such a, such a juxtaposition. I, think, I feel like this is the hardest part of the text. Other than swallowing the pill, like Romans 9, which we'll get to, God willing, in the spring, is a very difficult chapter. Not so much because it's hard to understand, but because it's hard to receive with the will. Because it, it talks about how God is the one who chooses us. We don't choose him. Now, cognitively, that's not that hard to understand. But it's hard to accept because of our wills. Because we want to have a part in this thing. And it's very, very humbling. And so in the same way, I feel like um, this text that we just read is a very heavy text. It talks about how wicked and evil we are apart from Christ. And that's, it's not hard to understand, but it's hard to receive. But it's good if we do. But there's a, there is a, a sort of cognitively tough thing here. Did the, does the Jew have any advantage? Verse 1, yes. But then in verse 9, is the Jew any better off? No. Okay, so which is it, Paul? In fact, I would argue, using Paul's arguments in chapter 2 that we covered last week and the week before, that the chief advantage of the Jew, Jew, which he's just told us, the scriptures, the oracles of God, that they've been entrusted with. No other people on the earth have been entrusted with these oracles. They tell us what God, who God is. Through these things, he brings a people to himself. He makes a people. He tells them how to live, how to thrive. So the chief advantage they have, the scriptures, makes them worse off than before when it comes to their guilt in relying on their own righteousness or law-keeping to save them. Um, Above all, the law shows us not that we can keep it to God's satisfaction, but that we break it and stand guilty before Him. Paul says, I didn't know what it was to covet until I saw the law, until I got the law, you shall not covet. And then I realized, oh, I'm a coveter. And so there are things that the law shows us we don't don't even realize we're doing or not doing until we have the law. Um, And so... Um, the law, I'm going to say that again, the law shows us not that we can keep it to God's satisfaction, but that we break it and stand guilty before him. So if you're, let me put it this way, if you're looking at the law saying, okay, I've got this, I'm going to get to God through my law keeping, you're really toast. Because that's, that's not what the law's for. And you can't keep it and you're self-deceived. And that's not the mechanism, even in what God gave his people in the Old Testament for salvation. We'll talk about that in a bit. But then if you realize, well, I can't keep the law, I'm a lawbreaker, you see your sin even more deeply, but what's the mechanism for, for being saved? So there's a sense in which... Um, well,
2: he, he was prepping peep his people for Jesus. That's so right. Like, he was. You can't keep the law, that's right. so what are you going to And do? what is
0: Paul doing here? He's, he's realizing, he's pulling out the actual real purpose that God had all along yeah. for the Old Testament and for the law is to shoot us, to push us to Jesus, because we realize without, without Jesus, without a Messiah coming from the outside to save us, we have no hope in our it. It's to devastate all hope in our own law-keeping, all hope in our own efforts to get to God on our own, right? So next to God, uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm in the, reading the wrong part of the notes here. Um, above all, the law shows us not that we can keep it to God's satisfaction, but that we break it and stand guilty before him. So the law shows us we need a law-keeper, here's the thing, that is not us, Right? So in verse 10, Paul is quoting a psalm. No one is righteous, not one. It's Psalm 14, which is essentially repeated, almost verbatim, in, in Psalm 53. And let me just briefly say, we're not going to turn there. You can if you want, but we're not going to turn there and study it. We don't have time. But he, he's taking from the first few verses of Psalm 14. And um, that, that, that psalm, if you just read it, it seems to be talking about the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews in in, uh, Psalm 14 verse 4 um, because it says that this evil is all people that are not God's people. All this evil being perpetrated, all these verses that Paul's quoting here where it says, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one sees God. All have turned aside. They become worthless. Um, In verse 4, it seems to be talking about Gentiles and not Jews. It seems to be talking about people who are not God's people. Yeah. Paul applies this though to everyone. And you really see that if you read Psalm 14 verses 1 and 2, it says the Psalm starts out just by saying no one is righteous, not a single person. So he's really taking this and saying if you read it correctly, you can't you can't say that it's 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 just for the non-Jews. The Jews probably read it that way and said, "Yeah, the whole world outside there that this describes them." Paul says no, it describes all of us. It describes all of us. There's, righteousness has to come through in another way. And you can see that a bit in, the, in the la, the, one of the last verses in the psalm, in Psalm 14, where it says, Oh God, would you send salvation out of Zion? Would you send salvation out of Zion? But it's and so you could have read that geopolitically, but it really is pointing to Jesus. It's yeah. so
2: interesting that the Jews, because God was so you know, direct about you know, their hearts and keeping the law, and they had to know that they weren't keeping the law, but yet when Jesus came, they thought, oh, God's sending the Messiah to, to free us politically. They never got it. They never got it. And some did. Some, but, but not, most of them didn't.
0: Yeah, the power of a paradigm. So and it's, it. it's so easy, it's not so easy still, but it's so much easier now on this side of not only of the having seen all that God came to do in Jesus and how he unlocks the scriptures and how everything points to him and how he literally said after he was resurrected, hey, you know, before he was resurrected, he said, hey, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. And then after he was resurrected in Luke 24, he said, hey, it all, it all points to me. And he, and he showed them how it all points to him in the scriptures. But now we, we have not only the, 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 uh, the benefit of hindsight, with Jesus fulfilling all of it, with all of it being like, an the whole Testament being like an arrow that points to Jesus. But also, or like he's, a, you know, it's a funnel, and it all funnels down toward, toward him, to use another sort of metaphor. But, but we also have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We have Jesus, if, we're, if we've looked to him for our salvation, and we are regenerate, we're alive in Christ, we literally have Jesus inside of us, helping us see all that. So but we didn't it's have it's Jesus
2: in us it's easy to underestimate. To be our Lord and
0: no, no, that's right. But the so Lord,
2: we at, least, we at least saw something that.
0: They, and but that's but Jesus. that even that's of the Lord, that's that's something we can't take credit for. And Paul talks about that in various places, Romans nine. But one is of it them. any less?
1: Is it any? Sorry. No, saying, not at all. But like, I, I take your point about like it's amazing that they didn't see it. Yeah. Um, especially the Pharisees and the, the scribes, right? Who. You had it all memorized, it right? It all, right. But, memorized. but, like, is it any less, is that different from, like, the, Paul didn't the, see it. the Israelites, or sorry, the Hebrews, um, immediately forgetting, like, the parting of the Red Sea in the desert, yeah. or even before that, when they're at the edge of the Red Sea, forgetting the miracles that bore them out to that point, you know?
0: Or the Christian being in a church, let's bring it home to today, bring in a church. I mean, how many millions are there in churches around the world? or churches throughout history for the past 2,000 years, unfortunately, who have, who have misunderstood what the Scriptures are about and think, okay, it's about, really it's about being a good person. Really it's about behaving. Really it's about not doing certain things and doing certain things. And we even, even with all this clear as day written down before us, with Christ making sense of it all, we can still completely miss the boat because what sin does is sin orients us so that we want to be our own Savior. You know, either we want to run from God in rebellion or we want to do things right so that God owes us something. But the idea that he would do it all and then invite us freely to come to him through something that he's done and we can't do is deeply humbling and then it doesn't give us any bragging rights and it doesn't give us any hooks. It's just like, okay, I'm yours. Command me. I don't have any more rights. And that's, that's something that our flesh will literally fight to the death against, and so it, ha- we have to be, it has to be shown us by the living God. And Anyway, that's off text, but it's really, it's really great, great, great discussion and very relevant. So, okay, let's keep moving, but great stuff. Keep, and if you have something, I love this dialogue, keep doing it, but also if there's like a thread that we haven't fully tied up, write it down, and we'll talk about it at the end. Okay, so in verses 10 through 18, let's get into this meaty section here where Paul's just quoting left and right from Psalms mainly, but also some prophets and some proverbs. In verses 10 through 18 of this chapter of of Romans 3, Paul quotes a slew of Old Testament scripture, much of it from the Psalms, like I said. Um, Then in verse 19, he labels everything he has just quoted the law. Okay, so what is Paul doing? Paul is saying that the whole Old Testament, even the Psalms, has the binding, even poetry, it has the binding force of law. The law here is a synecdoche. It's a short catch-all term for the three-part Hebrew Bible, which is referred to commonly as the law, the prophets, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So because the law came first, and if you imagine the whole Hebrew Bible like a building, and the foundation is the law, and everything is built on top of that, the prophets are next, and then the writings on top of that. The foundation, because everything rests on the foundation, on the law, is if you sometimes, a shorthand for the whole Hebrew Bible, for the, all the scriptures that were in existence at this point that pointed to Jesus, was the law. And so that's its shorthand, but it's also Paul's way of saying, and he's quoting mainly from the Psalms, and he, then he goes, he turns around and goes, yeah, that's the law. So what he's saying is, even the poetry, which, by the way, ought to be read as poetry, not as prose, and certainly not as legal um, stuff, because it's, it's poetry, and it ought to be read according to that genre. You need to understand that a metaphor is a metaphor, et cetera. Et cetera. Don't read it over-literally. But it literally has the same binding force for Paul and for Jesus, by the way, as anything in the Pentateuch, anything in the first five books of Moses, as any other book in the Bible, any of the histories, any of the prose histories. Um, I have rabbi friends that would push, they would blanch at this. They would push against this interpretation by Rabbi Paul, of the whole Hebrew Bible, and they have, big time. They, they take, they take the, uh, the other sections of the scriptures, the writings and the prophets, but definitely the writings and the Psalms, less seriously, with less binding force, with less apodictic force um, than the Torah. Or than the, uh, than the uh, yeah, Torah. the first five books the pentateuch of the of the bible but not paul so so all of it prose poetry prophets wisdom literature it's all binding it's all incontrovertible and demonstrably true is is that's what paul's saying by calling all this law um so jesus does he talks just as strongly about the binding force of the entire hebrew bible and he does it in a lot of ways just a couple just two examples. One way is um, when he's arguing with, when it was many battles with the, fairest, with the religious leaders, and he, um, they're questioning his messiahship, and he says, he quotes from Psalm, it's a Psalm, Psalm 110, the first verse or two. And he says, how does Psalm 110 start? Does anyone know? No, don't turn there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the Lord said, well done. The Lord said to my, this is, by the way, this is the most quoted psalm, maybe the most quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament. So it tells you a great deal about what the New Testament writers thought about Jesus. And the psalm is, the Lord said to my, and about what Jesus had accomplished in his incarnation, and in his death, and in his resurrection. The Lord said, the psalm starts this way. The Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make of your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, in other words, um, David wrote the psalm, and he's saying, the Lord said to my Lord, so there are two lords here, and he's talking about the Messiah. Everyone, every, every Jew knew that, okay? The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand, the hand of power. Sit, share the throne with me. Get all the glory that I'm getting as God. You're being treated as the living God. Sit here, you're going to have all the power I have. No, no man had that. Uh, while I make an in, uh, uh, of your enemies a footstool. So in other words, when you put, I'm gonna, all your enemies are going to be, everyone against you for eternity is going to be like an ottoman. You're going to put your feet on their heads. And that's a sign in the ancient Near East. When you put, like when Joshua defeated the kings, he put his feet, he had them get on the ground and he put his feet on their necks. It's a sign of utter conquest. It's like, you're eating dirt, sucker. You're done, you're toast. Bye-bye.
2: Cut their head
0: I can't remember if they did. I think they probably slayed, yeah, slayed them, slew them. Um, David s- did. Why now? David. Goliath. Wait, wait, wait. Plenty of, plenty of blood. Of when Joshua put his put his feet on the necks of the defeated kings. Anyway, they're, they're toast. They're toast. They're definitely toast. So yeah. that all that's to say, yeah. when you re- when you stand against Jesus in the long run, if you resist his kingship, the only thing for you is your toast. Forever. Okay, so the point is the Messiah here, so he says um, Jesus takes a psalm and he's quoting from Psalm 110 and the New Testament authors are quoting from Psalm 110 more than any other Old Testament uh, passage and he says, Jesus' argument is, well David says, David's writing this and he says, the Lord, God Almighty, the uncreated God, the only uncreated being, says to my Lord. And so he says, if David calls the Messiah Lord, and yet the Messiah came from him, then what's up? How, did he, how is he his son, but he's also his Lord? So he's just, the Pharisees' understanding of Messiah wasn't big enough. They didn't understand the Messiah was the living God himself, Son of God. And so Jesus is taking this psalm, this poetry, and he's saying, yeah, you guys clearly haven't read the scriptures. That's just one example um, in John 10, one, one more example, John 10, 33 through 36, Jesus says um, they're challenging the fact that Jesus is claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be the son of God. And he says, hey, your own scriptures say um, you are, they say you are gods. They say that and they, and they cannot be broken. He says, is it not written, he's quoting from the Psalms, he says, is it not written in your law? I say, I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? So he's again, he's taking a psalm, he's calling it law, he's saying the scripture can't be broken, and the scripture calls men little g gods. And so he's saying, if, if that, and that's, that's the scripture, you take it as, as law, you take it as binding, and it is then how can I not claim to be the son of God? So again, he's using a psalm in the same. My point is, he's using a psalm. You don't have to understand all that other than to say, he's using the psalm in the same way that Paul is using it here. Even the poetry is completely binding. Um, Okay, so let's look at, with a magnifying glass, it's some of these sins, that this litany, this concatenation of of psalms, and some of these sins that Paul unpacks here that he just lists. Most of these sins are sins of the tongue. Here when we look at, we look at Romans 3, um, really starting in 13. So a lot of these sins are sins of the mouth, of the tongue, um, sins of speech. And I want to ask you why you think that might be. So he's really trying, as he pulls from these Psalms, he's trying to tell Jews and Gentiles like, nothing good comes from us. Not, not a single person is righteous. Why why does he highlight and feature in the middle of this passage with all these psalms and all these Old Testament passages, sins of the tongue? What, what do you think? I don't know, by the way. I didn't spend any time in the commentaries. This, I didn't have time. It was just... So I, I have guesses. So I would love to hear your guess. Give us a
1: minute. Think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can I guess? Yeah, please, please, please. Um, Idea popped in my head. So later, Paul talks about you know, um, just what was what he saying? Later, Um, blessed those, um blessed are those, few of those who preach the good news. I mean, he's talking about it's Romans ten. The, that's right. Yeah. So he's talking about the gospel, which is you know spread by the word, right? So that's obviously what's coming next week. Um, oh yeah. With, with the next why is going to be fun. But the converse of that is would not be fun. The the fact that like the obviously the gospel like sin and death comes um, primar- first and foremost through the spreading of lies. And I just think about the garden, right? Like yeah, it all began with Satan whispering with words in Eve's ear mm-hmm. with false words,
0: mm-hmm. um, twisting those words, and giving her most giving of a partial is, like, truth. Like
1: a of ass. You know, mm. like,
0: Ma'am, tying into the garden. And that's good protology work. Protology is when you take a text and you go, what's been said in the Bible? before Because these are different books, letters, po- different genres, poetry, law, history, but it's all one book. And it ties together so beautifully that it tells one story throughout history of God making a people for himself through his son Jesus Christ and readying a bride for his son Jesus. That's, it's a, it's a, so it's one book written by one author through lots of different human authors. And so we can go back and go, what is... What has been? What is this pointing to? That's come before in this book, the Bible, and that's what Jordan's doing, and that's great. The Asps. There's a lot here that's pointing us back to the Garden. So that's that's one. That's one great answer. What else? Why? Why else do you think? Um, and it's sort of something else you maybe suggested is that, like, look. And not only did it lead to our fall, but the gospel is the mechanism. The mouth is the mechanism by which we articulate. As Chase was telling us in the prayer meeting last night. What, the the mouth is the is the is the organ that we use to articulate to express, to explain the gospel with our words. And yet, instead of explaining the good news of who God is and what He's done for us, and how gracious and compassionate He is, as the Jews were supposed to do, in the, as the people of God, it was and as and as Gentiles do as well. What's pouring forth from our mouths is we're breaking each other down, hate speech, vileness. All right. So, what else? What else? Yeah, Barrett. Uh-
3: Another pastor mentioned to me when I was studying this, told me that, like you just said, we have two of everything. We have two hands, two feet as human, two eyes, two ears, and unfortunately we always use the one one thing more often than other things other than that. We use the mouth more often, even if we're a, a mute, we're signing, but at the same time we use our mouth more times to tell somebody something versus going, look, and point to it, we actually just say something about it instead.
0: Yeah, and, and James kind of hints at that when he, in his letter when he says, let's be slow to speak, quick to listen. Right. So, so often I reverse that, unfortunately. I have my two sin. Things, yep.
2: but I don't know if they're right. But um, One is that all these sins of the mouth are just pointing to the fact that out of from this, yeah. Come, uh, where does it? Where, are the, where are words? heart comes out of your mouth.
0: Where do words come from? From the heart. The heart that's what Jesus, Jesus. Who said that? Who said that?
2: Well, Jesus, right? Jesus said that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah then, exactly. I think that's that. I think that's one of the so reasons he's as well.
2: Pointing to the fact that we, we need a Savior. Yeah.
0: Because it, think about all this putrescence to use a good to use a good uh, um, um, Princess Bride word. Right. Um, think about all this filth. Think about all this poison that he's saying pours out from our mouths. Where does it come from? It comes from our hearts. It's 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 a it's a great way to, to, to see uh, our hearts. Like if it's hot in the in a house or if it's cool in a house, you can just check the thermostat. It comes from whatever the thermostat is set on, and it, and this tells me whatever's coming out of my mouth tells me the temperature of my heart. And we're and Paul's saying all this, and we can trace it straight down to the heart because Jesus says not what goes into you, it's not the food you take in, it's what comes out of you, and that comes from your heart. And only only one we can't change our own hearts. We can yeah. Okay one more thing. yep that's that's one reason by the way, that someone's speech often changes instantly the minute the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of them. You, you'll hear this the longer you're a believer, more and more and maybe it's happened to you if you came to Christ later in life, especially, but people will say I was I cussed, I was I, 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 I had a, I had a mouth like a sailor and and, the, and there are other evidences too, obviously, but a lot of times people will say, uh, and then, and then the Lord, just, I I trusted in Christ. I looked to Him. <laughs> I felt lighter. He cleans, He took something off of me. He took my sins away, and like I I, the desire to to be filthy in my language was gone. Not that I don't still uh, the word doesn't pop up or I don't have to work at it still, but there was something that changed about the language. because the heart, the heart was made new. It was circumcised. Yeah, go ahead. Who who is who had something? Well, I- Yeah, yeah, one more thing, and then I'm going to dive in on some of the stuff y'all said and some of my own.
2: this might be far-fetched, but, um, okay, he's talking about how our words condemn us, right? And they condemn us because they show what's in our heart. But then Jesus came as the Word of God. Yeah. And and the Word came and and, uh, showed us how evil we really are because... The when you look at Jesus you're looking at God and you're seeing a perfect person yeah and so and he's the a, it, as the word as
0: the word he is the perfect articulation of God exactly he tells us I mean Jordan's words if you hang around him long enough and I could go around I'm not just picking on Jordan all of us will tell us if we're around him long enough he will tell him not just on the first date all his words are going to be great if, and he's born again lovely man all of our words will tell, us what the, they'll tell you what the person is like. Jesus, as the word, tells us exactly in his actions and his words exactly what God is like. And, and so one of, and to, to jump on this, and then I'll, I'll go to my things, and, and uh, y'all, y'all really nailed a lot of them, which is awesome. Let's, we'll dig in a little more. But um, one of the things that Jesus does, I, I, I don't think we think about this enough. We've talked about it some in this, in this class. One of the things that the word of God made flesh— dwelling among us, did, is he, he showed us, like Mom said, he showed us just how when we see the Word of God, the perfect articulation of God's goodness among us, one of the things it does is it shows us how deeply corrupt we are. Right. How do we know that? What's the, what's the empirical proof of that? We literally nailed him. We killed him. We murdered God. Yep. It, show, it brought our sin out. At the same time, of course, the Word of God shows us how deeply, deeply, sacrificially loved we are. It shows us both. It shows us both, right? So just to piggyback on what you're saying, and we'll talk more about that in the future, even next week probably. But, um, so I want to jump on a few things y'all said. I just have them here. Um, why are these sins of speech, sins of the tongue that, that Paul lists here, that he highlights, um, is, is it because from the, mar- from, the, from the heart the mouth speaks? I, th- I think so, Maybe. Um, also, speech, y'all kind of touched on this, speech marks us as imago Dei. What does imago Dei mean? Image of
2: God.
0: Yeah, it marks us as alone. Not even the angels are made in God's image, by the way. We are. Not, the angels aren't redeemable. Once they fell, there's a chasm they can't cross. Jesus didn't die for the angels. He died for us. We're redeemable. We can fall. We are all born, fallen, yet God gave his life to save us. So the speech marks us. Speech is one of the main markers. When God, in Genesis 1, through 28, when it says he made man in his own image as the crescendo of his creation, what does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? How does that manifest itself? Well, it manifests itself in a, in a few ways, but one of them is God is the word and we have speech. Now, yeah, some apes and some dogs and stuff, they say, it can have certain parrots. bits of language, parrots, but like... They aren't writing Shakespeare, like right? right. They're not invet- Is to use a phrase from C.S. Lewis. We are inveterate poets. We are philosophers. We we have book. We fill books in libraries. We are people of words. And so, speech Marxism is a maggot day. The poison out of our mouths points to the corruption of our created nature, to the ruin of God's image in us. Isn't that basically for two chapters what Paul's been saying? He's pointing. He's putting his finger on the ruin. The ruination. Of God's good image in us. And our, our corrupted speech shows, shows that. Um, words are meant to heal, thirdly. They're meant to bring life. That's what they're made for. I mean, think about it again. Jesus is the word, and he comes to heal us, to completely bind our shattered hearts, right? God is, after all, the word, and this word brings total healing. But the words described in verses 13 and 14 bring death to others. They harm rather than heal. They curse rather than bless. They poison, infect, deceive, and damage. In short, our words are shorthand for showing the totality and immensity of our ruin, of how sin has made us the opposite of what God made us. He made us to picture and carry and convey his life. Instead, sin killed us dead, we propagate death, ruin, and misery. Look at history. It's a history of wars. History is, if you've read any history, you know, history is a history of wars. What is, what's making news right now? No surprise. It's wars. It's a big deal. It's horrible. But the only people, the people that seem to get most thrown off by it are people that haven't read history. It's like, this is history. This is what we do. We create wars. This isn't a sign of the end times. This has been happening for over 2,000 years. We are in the end times, and we are in the tribulation, and this will characterize our world until Christ returns, period. Mm-hmm. And then, and the church will continue to grow, and Christ will continue to be on his throne, and when he comes again, he's going to come to stay. And I'm giving away my, my millennial position, but it's okay. I'm off the notes, but, you know, we'll get into that in another class, okay? So, um, but this is, this is what we do. It's a, history is a history of wars. Look at, just look at Genesis 4. The chapter after, right after, our unfallen parents who are made in God's image. Sin. Like the whole chapter. Okay, so they sin. They hide from each other. They hide from God. They're full of shame. They're dis, you know, um, uh, dissembling and, and blame-shifting. But then what happens in Genesis 4? It takes a way worse turn. Their progeny kill each other. I mean, Cain murders his brother and then denies it and then throws a pity party because God is going to send him away. And what if they kill me? And God should be like, you deserve it. You deserve worse than that. I'm going to finish you off right now. Bam! God doesn't do that, right? He has mercy. He's forever. He's always so much more full of compassion and mercy than I am. He says, don't worry. I'm going to put a mark on you. It's going to protect you. And Cain goes off and does his thing. But then, the generation after that, Lamech, the author is showing us how sin snowballs so fast, and it takes all of us over, and it spreads like ink and water throughout all creation. Cain's ancestor takes it even the next step, and he kills a a little, like a boy, like maybe a teenager, maybe younger, maybe somebody, probably Seth's age, for for like bumping him accidentally or or, or offending him. Lamech, Cain's... Cain's descendant. And he makes a poem about it. And he brags about it. He's the first polygamist in the Bible. He brags about it to his two wives. He makes a song about it. And, he, and then he's told himself in his mind that Cain was justified in doing what he did. And so he's beating his chest. So, and, and then Genesis 5 is just a roll call of death. And you he died. And he died. Point. And he died. And by Genesis 6, what happens in Genesis 6?
1: You, you just think.
0: Yeah, what's, what's in Genesis 6?
1: It was uh, ha- evil and man's heart continually.
0: Yeah, and so God literally he can't even find, there's one righteous guy on the face of the planet. Mm-hmm. Noah. And through Noah, who looks to God by faith, God restarts everything, but he wipes out. It's gotten so bad. Uh, and it's an act of mercy, but it's, but it's intense. Okay. Seth, good? Seth is the one that, that the Christ line starts, starts over with. Yeah, which is the main reason we named you Seth. And there are other reasons too. Um, okay, so, but actually, so we've talked about, was Seth good? A Good thing we didn't name you Cain.
2: Boom, boom. I would have been can. like, okay,
0: where's my brush? Okay, yeah, I'm going to change need, that.
2: I need a burst with a marker. <laughs>
0: so actually, though, I've been focused on the, on the mouth, right, we have, but there's a progression here. If you've read the text carefully, there's a progression from mouth to feet, Okay, hands are implied because it says, it's, it's, it says the, the feet are swift to shed blood, but it's hard to shed blood if you just have feet. You've got to do it with your hands. So the hands are implied when the feet... So it's, there's a progression from mouth to feet to mind perception in verse 17 to sight perception in verse 18. Um, mental understanding of what's taken in through the senses. So this is a way of saying top to toe, soup to nuts, A to Z, we are corrupt. We're ruined. We're evil. We're dead in sin. There's a progression even with the mouth. What's the progression with the mouth, in verses thirteen and fourteen? There's a pr- little progression there, a four-part progression.
1: Throat, tongue, lips.
0: Throat, tongue, lips, mouth. That's right. Throat, tongue, lips, mouth. Um, so you can see it going up, right? Coming up from where? Throat, tongue, lips, from the heart, right?
1: Is that proverb uh, interesting? Uh, twenty-three, seven. For as he thinketh in his heart, so a so man
0: he. is. That's right. So let's look at the feet are swift to shed blood. You may protest, I've never shed anyone's blood or murdered anyone. That is way too intense for me. Yeah, but have you ever had the chance? just want to ask. Most of us haven't. You may, um, so have you ever had the chance? Number one, so let's dig into that some. Law restrains us. Law restrains us. One of Calvin's three uses of the law is that it doesn't just show us our sin, it also restrains sin. Thank God. I mean, some of the cities on—I've mentioned this before—but some of the cities on the coast, on the coast, especially in the northwest, that uh, where law for a time period or, or right now for an extended period of time is sort of is sort of ebbing, is kind of being um, disregarded. You could see what's happening to these societies, right? So law restrains sin. Um, also, we we are bound by what people might think in our behavior. But if we ever um, so, if you've uh, if we ever had a chance to, to do things, and, and nobody would know, and there would be no legal consequences. I wonder how we behave. Um, there's that, um, that the, 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 uh, the story of Gaiji's ring that Plato tells, I think it's in his Republic.
4: Yes. Yeah,
0: thank you, it's been so long. The, the, Gaiji's ring, and this is probably, by the way, we were talking about Tolkien earlier, it's probably where Tolkien got his idea for the ring that turns anyone that wears it invisible. Um, and it, in, in, the, in, the, in the story of Gyges Ring in Plato's Republic, um, basically, if, if memory serves, um, Gyges, or whoever wears the ring, it turns him invisible, and he's able to, to do things, to get away with things. And it kind of shows, it, it shows his heart, and it corrupts him. Um, and um, this is a notion that's confirmed by sociological studies during exceptional times when consequences briefly, di- briefly disappear. Like when you have a war and all the legal apparatuses for a time are just like leveled and there aren't any legal repercussions for something, or during a riot when for a 24 or 40 hour period there aren't any legal repercussions. Um, sociologists have studied these time periods and basically there's a 10 10 80 sort of sociological phenomenon that's, 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 uh, that's pretty well, widely received, apparently. And the 10-10-80 is that 10, about 10% of people will just never break the law, even if there are no consequences for doing it. They're just not going to do it. And then there are 10% on the other end that just are always going to break the law, or, or a lot. And so they, okay, they, they, go, they go after it. But there's an 80% that are typically law-abiding, and during times like this when their consequences are leveled and there just aren't any legal apparatuses and repercussions, um, and everyone's kind of doing it, there's an 80% that's the stable middle normally that begin to break the law because there aren't any. And it's the, it's the, it's the guy G's ring thing. So, so I wouldn't underestimate your or my capacity what's in our hearts to do these things if some of these if some of these things that normally whether it's people's opinion or the law repercussions going to jail whatever um, we're, were done away with right um, and and again remember history is empirical proof of the truth of paul paul's words here we all we have to do is read history to see um, so let's look so paul says um up at the if we go back up at to the top in verse 11 he says no one understands Just to briefly touch on that, no one understands, and Jordan kind of touched on it earlier. This is referred to by theologians as the noetic effects of sin. Noe is the Greek word for mind. And one of the great enlightenment lies was, okay, my thinking, I, I may have trouble in other areas, my body may be broken, this, that, and the other, but my thinking is pristine, my thinking is pure, I can get to God through my thoughts, and it's unfallen, there's an assumption of un- the unfallenness of our logical and rational processes and of our minds. But the Bible is clear that although we have amazing mental capacities, sin corrupts and it affects our minds, especially when it, come- when it, when it relates to how we know God and how we obey God in our wills. So, so no one understands. Paul's really talking about the darkening of the mind here and the darkening of the will. And that's called the noetic effects of sin. He says no one seeks for God. Um yeah but what about those who do or seem to? Oh, well, yeah, none none actually Paul says. So it's what a, about it's a seek seeming. A friendly
1: secret friendly churches.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's That's a Right, right. We can get to that later. But <laughs> we ought to be we ought to be appealing to people but but um if people do come and do our the things of the Lord, it's because the Lord's drawing them, right? But we, that, doesn't, that doesn't obviate the need for us to try to attract people for the gospel as well. But, um, so, so actually, uh, it seems often like people are seeking for God, but the fact is that Paul is saying here, no one seeks for God. Um, we have reasons that we present as to why we're seeking God, but actually, because no one does, God, for us to be saved, had to come and seek after us. Right? The Son of Man, that's why Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, because we weren't going to do it. We always are doing it for ulterior motives, for our own purposes. Um, Those who are dead to God, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and following, don't seek God. Dead people don't seek. And then Paul says, all have turned aside. There's a suppression of truth uh, that Paul talks about in Romans 1. There's also a turning away, there's another sort of another metaphor. There's a turning away from the right path, a turning away from God. Um, Look at what this turning aside does. It makes us worthless, Paul says. It strips us of worth. No wonder, when we think about the way Paul puts it there, it's, it makes us worthless. It empties God's greatest creation, his image bearer, his beloved, of worth. It makes us absolutely worthless. No wonder God hates it. Remember what Calvin said? I quoted this um, in the, in the last passage in Romans 1, Calvin says, How could God, who is pleased by the least of his works, like a snail or a clownfish, right? Oh, that's me. I said that. How could God, who is pleased by the least of his works, have been hostile to the noblest of all of his creatures? He is hostile toward the corruption of his work, Calvin says, rather than toward the work itself. So in other words, God hates the ruin of what he loves. Love is thus behind, underneath, and surrounding all of this wrath of God. All that God does, he does out of love. Even in his wrath, God doesn't cease to be loving. God cannot put his love aside. He's, a, he's simple in that all of his attributes are always at work in everything he does. And so his love is behind his wrath. He hates to see his beloved corrupted by sin rebellion. So, and rebellion. And we know that there's love behind it because Jesus is the perfect expression of God, because he is the very son of God, and he's God, fully God, and look at what he came to do for us, and look at how the father sent him to rescue us, right, and of course, I'm getting ahead to the next passage, but I have to, I can't not preach the gospel, right, um, and so God hates the ruin of what he loves, all that God does, he does, out of love. again, it's like, it's like when my mom, I, I think I shared this, but it's like when my mom found me, and we had a, a ranch, that we share with some other families in the Guadalupe cut right through it. And it was like 20 minutes from Green, Texas, right on the, right on river road there. And when there was a, I was in, I was about two, uh, two years old. And um, I was, she caught me in the, in the dining room, I think, uh, in the middle of a bunch of pink powder, which turned out to be rat poison. And, you know, I'm sure she wasn't like, I don't remember it, but I'm sure she wasn't like, Oh, how sweet. I'm sure the way that she reacted to me seemed like absolute fury, right? It was out of love. I mean, that's what God does when he sees us playing with the rat poison of sin that literally kills us for eternity and separates us from him. He wants us for himself. And so um, remember, never, ever forget that God is just and he has to punish sin, but that all of his wrath is because of how loving he is, right? I mean, if you, yeah, if you, if you, um, there are so many examples of how, again, a kid running out on the street, the parent is going to freak out and seem, and, and be furious in a sense, but it's out of love. Mm-hmm. And if, if you walk in on a spouse doing something that uh, that your spouse should, or, you know, you should not be doing, your spouse not be, if your spouse loves you, they're not going to just go, <sighs> don't do that. <sighs> cool. You know, like, uh, I'm going to go get a snack out of the fridge. No. You're going to be furious. How mean is your spouse? No, how loving is your spouse? It's because of because love is jealous, right? So all all of God's love is always behind what Paul's been piling on for the past um, for the past two chapters, right? Um, verses 15 through 17 so intense. Is Paul overstating things? Uh, their feet are a switch to shed blood; in their paths of ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Is Paul overstating things? Surprisingly, perhaps, I think we need look no farther than little kids. Imagine putting 10 to 20, okay, thought, thought experiment, three-year-olds in a, in a room for 24 hours. No adults. Just 10 to 23-year-olds and locking the door, and you come back in 24 hours. What are you going to find? Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. You're absolutely... Uh, or maybe you've done this and don't need to imagine. I hope you haven't. Um, what is the scene when you open the door of 24 hours? The scene is... Let's just go ahead and read the verses. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood. I guarantee you there's going to be blood. <laughs> Especially if there are boys in there. Let's just say it's 10 boys and 10 girls. Their paths are ruin and misery. There's going to be nothing but ruin and misery all over that room. People's, it's just... Uh, in the way of peace they have not known it's going to be the opposite of peace I can assure you that people's bones will be broken there's going to be blood they're going to be within minutes they'll probably be trying to take stuff from each other um, so uh, I can think I can't think of a better description of the crime scene that that room would be
1: because you didn't give them my pads
0: that's right that's right and if you gave them my pads it'd be worse you gave half of my pads oh my goodness oh no, oh, no. yeah <laughs> there's no such thing as an innocent child um <laughs> so, any way unconverted, unregenerate adults would not do these things is through good behavior that they've learned, good training, restraint, discipline, civility. But it's not through new constitutions, unless they're born again. Given bad enough circumstances, the devil comes out, the flesh emerges. Again, remember Gaiji's ring, remember the 101080 rule. There, Paul says in verse 18 there's no fear of God before their eyes. Seems extreme. Not one single person before the new birth has ever had any fear of God before their eyes. This seems to be what Paul is saying. But as I think about it, I didn't have enough time to really delve into this. But um, one, one thing that came to mind is just think of Adam and Eve. I mean, unfallen with every advantage. Um, and yet, there was fear of God before their eyes. They were unfallen they were his image bearers. There was no sin in them. And yet, through some manipulation, through some lying, the fear of God quickly got trumped by what their eyes were showing them.
2: Like what they could be.
0: And ever since then, the history that the Scripture gives us is, is, is the, the fallout from that until Christ until Christ came on the scene. Yeah. Um, so... What's that? I I, I uh, I Well, fear of God is the, (laughs) it's the other side of love. It's the, if you can imagine, you know, if you imagine it like a coin, love is here and fear is on the other side. It's not terror. It's not craven fear. It's the, like the fear that, Uh let's just, this isn't a perfect relationship, but it's awe, it's respect. It's, it's the uh, respect for who God is and his power and his goodness and his glory. It's like maybe, you know, one tiny miserable example would be fear that Seth has of me. You know, he loves me. Hopefully there's not a craven fear, but he does have a fear of me because I'm his father and I'm I'm an authority figure and, and I
3: once I saw you order spanking spoons off of Amazon.
0: And once he saw me order spanking spoons off of Amazon, it's recorded. Um, I'm an
1: unfond man didn't know pain, didn't know sadness. Right walked with God. Yep. This is just speculation, but you can kind of think about how it would be difficult more difficult for them. To recognize distill to, to still um, great chasm between themselves and God in that state, versus like us in our fallen state.
0: Yeah, versus. and so I think I wonder
1: if that was like a temp- almost like a, an illusion, you know?
0: Yeah, and I think that's a complex thought. I mean, it's definitely a complex thought. And there's a it's it's fraught with all sorts of things because it's like there's a sense in which they were much they were much higher before they fell, right? They were. Uh, that sin had not corrupted any part of them; they were f- fully God's image bearers, the noblest of all God's creatures. And so, in that sense, there wasn't as much of a chasm. But in another sense, sin makes us. Sin is one of the is the thing that makes us think that there isn't that big of a difference between God. And so, I think there was a sense in which, in their unfallenness, they probably appreciated the the massive amount of distance, in in a good sense, between the uncreated, all powerful Creator. And creatures who were—they knew their full dependence. One of the things sin does is it makes us feel like I'm independent of God, okay. right? And and you know, and it makes God small and it makes us big. But but without sin, we begin to see how small we are, and it right sizes us. The Lord right sizes us, and it, and it helps us see how how good and powerful He is. So I think it's kind of yeah, there are a couple different angles to that for sure. Um, now I have this text outline. I don't want to take time. To read it because to read all of it because um, I want to leave time for questions. So let me just pick out a few things. Um, one is that just to kind of recap a, a couple things and then maybe mention one or two things that I haven't touched on yet, and then and then I'll close and we can have Q time. But until nine. But um, so he says, you know, do, do the Jews have advantages? Yes, absolutely. But they were unfaithful. And again, just to remind ourselves of what we talked about last week, if you doubt that, just go read the Old Testament. That, he's basically saying the Old Testament in a nutshell is an exposition of the Jews' covenant breaking. Um, and, and, and this is the part of the text we didn't get into. We kind of skipped to verses, verse 10 and beyond. But does he talks about, at the first part of chapter 3, does the, does the unfaithfulness of God's people mean that God is unfaithful? And he says, resoundingly, no. Right The whole time... God's people were unfaithful. He remained faithful. That's, again, That is, if you want a nutshell of the Old Testament, that's it. God's people were unfaithful, and he remains faithful. We can see this throughout the Old Testament. He brought them into the promised land, despite all their idolatry and their lack of faith, and they're saying, we want to go back to Egypt, um, and they, their lack of, of, of wanting to take the promised land and believing that God was with them and able to bring them into the promised land. He brought them back into the promised land after exiling them because of their disobedience. Um, even as they left him repeatedly, he kept he pledged himself to them bindingly, starting in Genesis 15 with Abraham. Um, and then you see the book of Hosea. The, what's the book of Hosea? What's the prophet Hosea? What's the whole book about? He's
1: he forced to marry a
0: prostitute. Yeah, and then what's that a picture of? He says, Hosea, my prophet, go marry a prostitute. Yeah, he's like, This is my people. But he stays their God. He said, and one of the things that Abraham Heschel uh says is that he writes a book called The Prophets, and he says in The Prophets, the law and the histories show us sin. They kind of show us, here's what Israel's doing to sin against God, and here's what sin is. The prophets interiorize that. The prophets show us, they don't give us a new history necessarily. The prophets, in addition to proclaiming, here's the Messiah that's coming, here's God's salvation that's coming, they condemn Israel, but they also say, not only here's what sin is, And here's how egregious it is, but here's how it makes God feel. It interiorizes sin. Here's how your sin makes God feel. Think about the book of Hosea. It breaks his heart. He takes it personally. It's like walking in on a husband or a wife who's cheating on you, who's in the act. That's how serious sin is to God. It's not just like an infraction. Well, he calls himself our husband, and then
2: Jesus is our bridegroom, which which is a a picture of you know, of of earthly
0: marriage, but it's even greater. Right. And we had a great pastor, young pastor um, in Edinburgh who had every advantage. He grew up in Edinburgh. He went to Oxford. He got a PPE, which is a, it's the, I think it's the biggest, um, it's the biggest major that prime ministers that go to Oxford and Cambridge typically get. It means politics, philosophy, economics. Uh, and he was on the rugby team, and he was a good-looking dude, and he had every advantage, came from a, a well-to-do family, well, well-mannered. And he, part of his, tes- his testimony is, I just didn't see any need for God. And I was playing rugby with my friends and going out for pints, and I was a good kid, and I, have, I was at Oxford. And Hosea, the book of Hosea, he read the book of Hosea and saw what an affront, what a personal affront, how his sin wasn't just an infraction. It broke God's heart. And it was him cheating on this living God who made Andy for himself. And it led to his conversion. Cause it, cause what, because what? Because he saw his sin and how desperately wicked he was. And because he saw that, it helped him flee to Jesus. And so that's what Paul's trying to do here. Um, So not only does God remain faithful, but he brings good out of my evil. To use Paul's words, if he makes it so that my unrighteousness highlights his righteousness, my law-breaking shows the goodness of of his law. If he brings good out of my evil, is it fair for him to punish my evil? After all, good came of it, is the argument. Paul says the person using this argument deserves to be punished, not exonerated. Their condemnation is just. He'll he'll talk much more about that in chapter 6. Um... But he also says, which we've talked about some, Jews are no better than Gentiles. Jews are no better off, excuse me, than Gentiles. As I've already shown, Paul says in chapter 2, no one is righteous on his own, based on his own record of law-keeping, God-fearing, and conduct. Not a single solitary person. All Gentiles and Jews, he says, stand justly condemned before the only righteous judge. The law cannot justify us, neither Jew nor Gentile. Um, Verse 20 is devastating toward the end of the chapter. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Um, In the end, notice that phrase, in his sight. In the end, what we see is not ultimate. What God sees is ultimate. Because it's what God sees that's determinative. And the law shows God our unrighteousness. That's one way to think about it. It's it's one of the things Paul's saying here. The law shows God our unrighteousness by showing how we break his law. The law comes from God. It shows his character. And up against God's character, our character is shown for what it really is. Like I said earlier, up against a worse sinner, Hitler, for instance, I look pretty good. I look really good next to Hitler. Hopefully. And that's what we normally put ourselves up against. People who look to be worse than we are. Because it feels good to look good. But God says no to this evasion. God says look at yourself next to me. Next to my law. Now how do you look? You look... And I look guilty. Paul's cleanly trying to, clearly trying to knock out the last leg that we may be standing on before delivering the gospel to us in the very next verse. You look guilty. You are guilty. I'm guilty. We are guilty. Perfect. Now, if we realize that fully, then we're ready for the gospel. Right? And so one of the things that we can do as believers is really do the scary thing of our gospel presentation in whatever format, it's going to look different every time according to how's the Holy Spirit leading us, what's the situation, what does this person need, you know, um, is really caring about them enough and respecting Paul's approach enough because he pres- this is the magnum opus of theology. This is, this is Paul showing us consummately and more thoroughly than in any other, any other letter the glory of the gospel. But what does he spend two chapters doing showing us how God's righteousness uh, shows our unrighteousness and what we deserve is his wrath. And so one of the things we we need to take more seriously and I need to take more seriously in sharing the gospel is first showing how serious of a problem we have. Because until that happens, a lot of times people are, oh, Jesus loves me. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Whoa, hang on, bro, sister, like, this is a big problem. You know, like, let me show you where we are. Let me show you where I am. Let me show you where we stand. Um, and so, uh, and I think about, and I have it here somewhere, but um, I'm not going to read it. Um, you know, we've talked about this before, but in the law showing us how messed up we are, you could take, take just a few examples of, like, okay, one of the laws is, the, 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 what's the sum of all the law everything God requires?
1: Love
0: the, Love the Lord with everything you are all the time. Who's ever done that for one minute, for 60 seconds? That's, but if we're not doing that, we're breaking everything else. Love your neighbors as yourself, that little word as. Who's ever spent the amount of time, affection, attention on your neighbor for a sustained amount of time? I haven't. Like that's, Lawrence has, and you sometimes. But me never. Okay, so, and then, and then we go to adultery. Okay, lust is actually, if you've committed lust, you've committed adultery. Oh, dang. If you've committed hatred in your heart, you've committed murder. Dang! So, so all the law goes is a matter of the heart, and God sees our hearts, and He cares. So we're we're toast, you know. So starting there and helping people see that they're lying, murdering, thieving, you know. And Ray, Ray uh, what's his name? Ray Comfort is. You can just uh, you can awesome. just YouTube Ray Comfort and see him interviewing people, and he he's so good at this. But
2: he always says, "I am a sinner." Oh,
0: and he sh- he shows them how they stand under God's wrath, and then he presents the gospel, and it's like it's like that diamond. With the black uh, on top of the black cloth, it just pops because you're like, "Oh, I, I, I want that. I need that." Um, and so, um, okay. So, let me let me finish with, uh, or or get close to finishing with. Uh, we, yeah, we, we don't have enough time. So let me let me read this quote I, I have before, but from from C.S. Lewis and then close down, and then we'll have a little bit of time for questions. Um, C.S. Lewis, quote, he actually finishes his essay, Dogma in the Universe, with this quote. He says, Do not let us deceive ourselves. No possible complexity which we can give to our picture of the universe can hide us from God. There's no copse, no forest, no jungle thick enough to provide cover. We read a revelation of him that sat on the throne, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. It may happen to any of us at any moment, the twinkling of an eye, in a time too small to measure, and in any place, all that seems, that seems to divide us from God can flee away, and will, by the way, vanish, leaving us naked before him like the first man, like the only man, as if nothing but he and I existed. And since that contact cannot be avoided for long, by the way, no amount of money, no amount of long life, no amount of possessions, no amount of relationships can keep you for long from that encounter with the living God, with nothing else covering you, but either your unrighteous works or Christ's covering you. Received by faith, right? So he says, and we'll get to that next week. And since that contact cannot be avoided for long, and since it means either bliss or horror, the business of life... Okay, Lewis, what's the point of my life? The business of life is to learn to like that encounter. This is the first and great commandment. And the only way we're going to like that encounter is if we are completely covered in the blood and in the life, the righteous life of Jesus Christ, received by faith. That's it. That's the only way. And if we are, we are going to love love that encounter. If we're not, it will be the most terrifying, eternally terrifying and damning and tragic encounter. It's coming for all of us. And Paul's trying to get us ready. So I think that we are done. Um, Let me just read this and then let's open it up to questions. Why would God be so why would uh, God be so cruel? I'm taking this out of out of place here, um, but why would God be so cruel um, to to give us this law that shows us our own sin? What advantage is having a law like this, Paul? If it's just to show, if it's mainly to show us our own rebellion and sin and depravity, why would God give it? Is it just to rub our noses in our own filth? No. It's to help us despair of our own righteousness. Remember that Luther quote at the beginning? Romans is to cause us to despair in any hope of our own righteousness, right? Until we do that, there's no hope for us. It's to help us despair of our own righteousness and law-keeping so we might flee to the one who is righteous in our place. But that's next week. It's the biggest but. I think Jordan mentioned that or somebody mentioned that a week or two ago. Next week starts with the first word. I believe it's in the Greek too. Is the big? It's referred to as the big butt. It may be the biggest. It's the it's the transition word. Um, maybe the biggest butt in the whole Bible. Um, and uh, isn't that funny? Seth, Seth's laughing. But it really is this. It's this stark, astonishing transition from the worst news to the best news ever. Um, and so that's what Paul's been getting us ready for so I'm excited about next week and really for the rest of our time We, Paul just can't stop himself he just un, unpacks the gospel and its implications for our lives so it's going to be fun well, um,
2: you know the thing is Paul lived this out like he was this perfect Jew who did everything right
0: kept the law tried to keep the law was actually was breaking it the whole time Yeah.
2: Opinion. And, but then he once, once Jesus appeared to him on the road of Damascus and blinded him and you know just Totally, you know, undid him. He was like, he could, all of a
0: sudden he's like, oh, I get it. And what was his, you know, he was trying to keep the law and that was his method of salvation. I'm just going to keep the law punctiliously and perfectly in my own strength. And that's going to make me right before God. What kind of fruit did that bear in his life? What kind of person was Saul before he, murderer, he encountered Jesus? Murderer, murderer. murderer. He was full of hatred yeah. and judgment and pride. That's what trying to live according to our own steam and trying to measure up to God based on our own performance does. It makes us—we either, either see that we can't do it and we're devastated and depressed, or we think we are doing it and we're jackasses. Yeah. Those are the two options. But the gospel breaks through, and it humbles us because it shows us we don't deserve any of this, but God gives it to us freely through His Son, Jesus, who suffered and died for us out of love. And so it's humbling, but it's also extremely uh, ennobling. Like God loves me that much? Wow. Okay, so, questions. And then we, let's not forget, we've got to sing out. we got to sing in 10 minutes
4: to...
2: Um, I have a question. Our hymn. We um, always say love your neighbors as yourself. It took me a while. I had to become a Christian to really love myself.
4: Oh, that's so good. That's good.
2: How many believers do not love themselves? So that's in great. that case, how can you say that. that to a neighbor when you, you yourself don't love yourself?
0: That's, I, I think that's a, a seldom thought of... I think that's a neglected part of that uh, command, mm-hmm. is that, hey, that implies... Yeah, if you're not loving yourself, then if you're going to love your neighbor like yourself, then they're not going to love your neighbor. That's so to love yourself is to...
1: You have to love yourself rightly too. You have to love yourself rightly too. It's not it's not giving yourself every indulgence. Right.
0: It's appreciating that God made you in his image, appreciating how deeply sinful you are, but how deeply loved. And it's it's so but yeah, you're right. It that's but
2: the church is not doing enough to help people love themselves. No matter what they are. You know, that God loves you
0: no matter how And I think the gospel shows us helps us to love ourselves in the right way more than anything else, right? Again, it's not a sort of, hey, treat yourself, you deserve this, follow your heart, you're great, you can be whatever you set your mind to. It's not that kind of nonsense. It's Jesus died on a cross for you. And I think it's true that, you know, you've heard people say, if you were the only person on planet Earth, Jesus would have also done the same exact thing for you, because he came to save particular persons. That's the doctrine of definite or particular atonement. Uh, that's that's a precious biblical, I, I I think biblical and Reformed doctrine is that he didn't just die hoping people would come to him. He died to come for particular people with faces and souls and stories. He died to save you. He came for you. So, a hundred percent. That's a great point. What else? It's a tough passage, I know. I mean, I mean we didn't. I know there are questions.
3: I think somebody asked earlier that. Yeah, why don't the Jews get it is because they still couldn't maybe oh, no. be my own self, being former Jewish and coming from a Jewish background, my mom being Jewish, is that they just don't understand yeah. a Jewish person or someone that was created Jewish can come to life to actually fulfill what's supposed to be done.
0: That it's, being, Je- that person being Jesus? Yeah. you mean? Yeah.
3: And that's why it takes so long, for example already being raised from the, even if you don't know who Christ is, even from that background of actually that Christianity faith right there, it's a little, I, I don't like that E word, easier step, but converting like myself, like yeah, you, Lawrence, you just said, if I can't love myself first, or I can't do those 10 commands, which are featured in the New Testament, if I can't do those things, how can I call myself a Christian? at all? And luckily, it's does, taking still. Christ died for the sin Yeah, but Christ it, uh, did those like saying, like, for, for example, you. How a <clears throat> educational video has to say, He has to say, I am the law of Moses. Even my own mom now understands, yes, He is the second Adam. She knows it. But again, she just does not believe that a person that is Jewish can save all. Of
0: and Paul will talk about this. And i like, Barrett and, you know, into, into the class and for the recording. I mean, Paul will talk about this exact thing in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And the only explanation for, I mean, Paul's an example, right, of a Jew that, uh, and he mentions this. He's like, has God forgotten the Jews? No, I'm a Jew. And I, and I trust in Jesus as the Messiah. I've been saved. Um, he came for us. But, but he talks about how the only explanation for how the Jews in mass as a people group, miss Jesus as the Messiah? Especially since Jesus is Jewish and came for the Jewish people. How do they miss it so badly? The only explanation you can give is because more than any other people group on the face of the planet, currently the Jews reject Jesus as Messiah. There's no contest. There's no other people on the planet that have heard the gospel and so massively rejected it. Paul gives the answer in black and white. He says it's because God has... God has blinded their eyes for a time to bring the Gentiles in to the faith and to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that at the right time, and he talks about this and we'll get there in Romans, at the right time, he will remove the blinders and bring in many of the ethnic Jews to faith in the Messiah. But there's no other explanation other than the fact that for a time in his mysterious providence and good pleasure, he has blinded their eyes because. It, you just see and you're like, how could you be so blind? The answer is he, God in his providence has blinded them for a time to bring us in, but then to provoke them to jealousy. And, and he talks about all, all sorts of other stuff too, but it's, he, so he will get there, but it's, um, and, and so the, the sort of converse of that or the implication of that or the other side of that is, man, the only, if, if God blinds you, you're not going to see. The only way you're going to see is if God opens your eyes. So in other words, what credit can I take? How much pride can I have in trusting in Jesus and seeing that he's a Messiah and, and casting myself on him? And, and, and zero. Because it's God who made me see. It's God who made you see. And that is something that we ought to just, that ought to humble us to the dirt. And it ought to give us great confidence. Anyone, any anyone, Jew, Gentile, notorious sinner, Really good, decent person. Anyone can be saved, because God is the one who opens our eyes. He can do it. All we're called to do is scatter the seed. It's not up to us to open our. We can't do that, but God can do it. And we and that's where prayer comes in too, right? We, man, I mean the power of prayer. Pray for people in your life that are lost. Hey
2: Taylor. Yeah. I think last week. Two more
0: questions, and then we'll. Yep. You talked
2: about, and maybe this is, I'm saying it wrong. Said something to back that the church has replaced Israel. Maybe you didn't say that. I didn't that's,
0: say replaced because okay. it's that's the people say oh it's replacement, replacement theology. theology we, but The church has been the, okay. The church is the church is the Israel of God. That's what Paul says. But it but it's Jew and Gentile. It's anyone who the, the church. We're grafted on. We've been great. Yeah. So Gentiles have been grafted on. Is what Paul says in Romans nine through eleven. Gentiles haven't replaced Jews. They've been grafted onto the Jewish tree, you know, through faith in, they've all, they're all the Jewish tree because they've, been, they've, had, they've trusted in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so um, the church is Jews and Gentiles and people from every stripe and nation who, and background who, who trust in, who have faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior and as the Messiah. Um, and so you can't be a Jew If you reject Jesus, that's what Paul says very clearly at the end of Romans 2 and elsewhere. You can't... I mean, so he says, because a Jew is not one outwardly, merely. A Jew is one who is circumcised of of heart. A Jew is one inwardly. Uh, And the only way you can have a circumcised heart is... Class? Yeah, the only way you get a new heart, a new constitution, is through the Spirit of the living God by trusting in Jesus Christ. So you can't not trust in Jesus and be a Jew. According to Paul, the Jew. Right? Yeah.
2: So said You, you can't, can't be, be a child a of God
0: outside of Christ.
2: If you're not if you don't
0: believe in Christ, he said. Absolutely. Oh go go read the let me just read I the end of Romans kidding. two. No, 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 yeah. Romans two. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Romans two twenty eight. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. What is Paul talking about? The heart. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. How do we get Inward transformation. How do we get the Spirit to live in us? Only one way. Only by trusting in Jesus. Not the letter. His praises is not from man, but from God. He says, he says this clearly in Galatians. He'll say it again. So, it, um, yeah. It's, and, and that's really co- consistent with the entire Old Testament witness. Abraham didn't start out a Jew. Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham worshipped the moon god Nana in Ur. God pulled him out. Of Ur and gave him a promise, and Abraham what? Believed God and God credited it to him mm-hmm, as righteousness. So Abraham didn't do a bunch of good stuff. He went, he wasn't a Jew, and God wasn't like, You're a Jew. I'm gonna he was a person of faith who trusted in God who called him, and and God credited that to him as righteousness. And that is he is the father of the Jews. In other words, he's the father of all who trust in God's word, which is Jesus. So it's, I mean, it's always it's always been that way. The Jews have always been a people of faith, not of a certain ethnicity. They've always been a people of faith and of the new heart through the Spirit. So we can we'll talk about more of that later. Hmm. So anything else, and then we can let's pray it out. Let's sing it out. All right. Let's sing. Anybody got a? Thing? Oh, you want one here?
4: on christ the solid rock i stand all of the ground is sinking sand all of the ground is sinking sand when darkness veils his lovely face i rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale My anchor holds within the veil. His oath is covenant. His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He shall come with trumpet sound oh may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone fall lest to stand before the throne take us home on Christ the solid rock I stand all of the ground is sinking sand all of the ground is sinking sand. Lord, we thank you so much
0: that um, for this word. We thank you for this time. We thank you that, dressed in your righteousness alone, received through faith in your righteousness, Jesus, for us, in your life for us, in your perfectly atoning and expiating, which we will... Focus in with laser focus on next week. Death for us. Uh, can we be safe? And are we indeed safe? And do we stand on solid ground, Lord? Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you when we hated you, when we spewed out violence against you, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and we were running from you, living for ourselves through your goodness, because of your goodness and not our own, in the mystery of your will you chose to rescue us. And I pray that that would sink down more deeply into our hearts, that it's nothing to do with our own goodness, as, as Paul has labored to show us what a treasure we have, but rather because of your goodness, that you came to seek and to save the lost, and that's us. And so I pray that that would not only humble us, but, it, but um, that it would ennoble us, that it would lift us up, that it would fill our sails Uh, That it would ground us, to give us an unshakable identity as loved children of God. And uh, that our salvation rests on you and what you've done and who you are, and not on anything that we've done. And that it would give us a bold witness, because you came for the worst of sinners. And that's us. That includes us, Lord. So I bless you. I thank you um, for your righteousness our firm foundation, and I pray blessings over every single person here in Christ. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Fan our gifts into flame. Send us out from here as your church in the world, and I pray that you bring us back safely next next week. Um, for your glory. Amen. Okay, guys.